Film Autopsy Podcast. I'm your host, Silvio Emery. And I'm Annie Neller. And today, we're making enough noise to get us killed in A Quiet Place, the 2018 horror thriller from John Krasinski. So, yeah, that was that was a movie. Uh, Annie, let's quickly <sighs> talk about what this movie is uh, and what kind of where we are and what we were expecting from it to begin with. Yeah. Uh, I did not actually know this was a John Krasinski project. I that was a complete left field thing for me. I knew he was in it, uh, but I had middlingly high hopes for this movie. Uh, I didn't really know, like again, I didn't know much about the production. Uh, but and I'll tell you one reason why I was excited for it, and it's a really dumb reason. But it's and like it's like everything I do, I do it for a joke. But uh, a couple years ago, we got. Uh, we got, uh, what was it? Don't Breathe, which was Shut the Fuck Up in a Scary House. And I saw trailers for this, and I understood the premise to be Shut the Fuck Up, It's the Goddamn Apocalypse. Which leads me to somewhere in the middle, between these two films, somewhere in this spectrum, the missing part of this trilogy is Shut the Fuck Up, It's Die Hard. <laughs> I think we're going to be waiting for that one for a little while, though. I'll fucking write it. I don't give a shit. Please, like, please do, because, I mean, I'd watch it. I know, right? You would wa- totally watch that. Like, there's, like, some mercenary yeah. group with, like, supersonic detectors or something. Like, oh, yeah. So you got, like... And the, it's believable, too. Yeah. Because now people have sonic weapons. Yeah, so you got, like, these, like, elite troops, like, moving past each other. You got two squads and then the office building, like... One's moving high, one's moving low, and they're going right past each other, and they can't see each other. And they're not making yep. any noise. How, how great does that sound, right? Anyways, ah, but yeah, I had, I had middlingly high expectations up until the week I saw it, where it started breaking out across social media. Like, reviews were coming in really good. Uh, it broke Chris Pratt. <laughs> apparently it did yeah no so i i didn't see that no that was on the what happened to chris pratt uh the, he posted a video of him uh like just reacting after the film in his car and he's, he's just like oh, oh really? my god you guys have to go see this it's incredible and so on uh i think that was on... oh that's really kind of fun yeah no it, it it was fantastic so uh yeah annie what were you kind of expecting going into this So, um, I didn't really have any expectations at all until last week, and I was watching the Graham Norton show, um, he's a British TV host and interviewer, and he had John Krasinski on with, um, Emily Blunt, and then I think also, uh, Kylie Minogue was on with them too, and, um, it was really great. Just like how they were talking about how you direct your wife. And that was when I found out that this was a John Krasinski, like, directorial thing. And he was very, like, cool about directing his wife. Like, he was talking about how talented she was and how it was amazing to watch her do this acting work. And he had not seen this before. And 
I was just honestly so impressed with the interplay between those two on Graham Norton that I was kind of like sold on the movie. I know that's super weird, but that's honestly how I felt. So I was sort of weirdly excited to see this after that. Yeah. Um, so that's kind of the context where we come into. This isn't like an entry in a series or someone we really know as a director. So it kind of came a bit out of left field for me. Yeah. And uh, so what did we think of this movie? Now, Andy, feel free to not use this system, which I've thought of just now. We've discussed this in a minute. Mm-hmm. But I want to try and actually kind of codify where we're rating and put this our reviews in a more summary kind of way. So the system I've come up with, uh, the MMR, the Movie Morgue Rating System, no, is um, <laughs> basically I think I want to give movies a letter grade and a plus or minus. And the way I'm picturing this in my head is that the letter grade does not stand necessarily for the achievement of the film, but for the kind of ambition and classification of film that it is. Uh, because we like B-movies here. And B-movies obviously being a problematic phrase in this specific context. But we like – there are a lot of movies that aren't great, that aren't earth-shattering, that don't really change film or add anything new, but are just excellent. So you have films like that that are like B-movies, but they're really, really good B-movies. So that's like a B+. So I have A for, you know, excellence, groundbreaking, uh, pushing new boundaries in film, or just something that you really should see that is just incredibly well done and crafted. And you got B, which is good. C is mm-hmm. all right. D is just... <laughs> like, C is a good mediocre, and D is a bad mediocre. Yeah. E is just bad, yeah. and F is inexcusable. And beyond that, okay. you have a plus for <laughs> being well good within your category or having really nice, solid execution. Something like, you know, The Expendables, perhaps, like would be okay. a really good okay. B-movie. Uh, but a minus is for serious flaws. Uh, because recently I saw um, a three bi- – I was, I was on a flight. I'm in America for a wedding right now. So we're on the same continent. Whoa! What? So I saw uh, three billboards, and I don't think it's quite the film that it was portrayed as in the discussion that we kind of had around Oscar time. But it was a movie, I think, that had very serious flaws, but was full of amazing craft and acting and was actually funny, which I wasn't expecting. So, like, it's, it, it is a really excellent film, and I can see why it was in Oscar contention. But there were some structural flaws that I think that kind of pulled away from truly being a great film. Mm. So that's an A minus. And okay, okay, so that's how you're measuring that. Cool. This film, I actually would say, is an A plus. Mm. I feel like it would be weird for me to call this an A minus for like one thing. Like I really only have one critique of this movie, and that it. it it doesn't fully execute the sort of like radical critique of like a um, a very hearing centric world that it's kind of skewering in that it doesn't provide subtitles for any of the spoken dialogue. I don't know if that's enough to give it a minus though. I mean, like this was a really, really good film. So I'm kind of like deeply, <laughs> I don't know. Okay. I, I want to give this an A plus, but I, I do think there are some. Well, I think you can maybe compromise that. and just go for an A. But one, yeah, uh, there, there, there's a couple good. reasons I do consider this to be an A plus. And by the way, that's my review because I'm gonna start getting a bit spoilery here, as we usually do. Go see this fucking movie. 
And I think that's kind of what yeah. an A plus to me Gotta is is even like I think there might hypothetically be A plus movies that I hate, but that I still say like this is interesting for film. This is something that is worth examining, if not on a kind of visceral enjoyment level, then at least on a filmmaking, you know, like academic level. And I think what this movie does is in many ways very novel and very new, which is kind of why I throw it into there. I think I, I, I agree that the subtitles for the spoken word, that would have been nice, but that's also, I don't think it is something that is central to the film. I, I feel it's kind of incidental almost. Like I, I, compl- I understand where you're coming from. And now that you mention that, I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I do wish that was there. Uh, I don't think it's central to the film. I just think it, for a film that is really seeking to, like, critique how hearing-centric film itself is, I just found it very ironic that they didn't choose to do that because it was really painfully obvious to me. Well, so that's I think the you could go really either fraught. way. Um, because I think either yeah. you can have subtitles and make it deaf-centric or have no subtitles even for the signed language. Which I would have actually preferred. <laughs> I would have preferred either way. Like, either you do full subtitles or none. Yeah. But the, the but. one thing that I think is fascinating about this, and this is kind of a deep cut already, but I feel like I have to start here, is that this is a movie, I think, that will not be anywhere near as good on the small screen. And we say that a lot. Uh, particularly for, like, big bombastic action or really CGI-heavy or, like, animation and stuff. But I think it's for a very different reason for this film. Uh, Because the way I describe this film is it's like when you watch a movie and a character falls into the water or something and you go, they have to hold their breath. Can I hold my breath that long? And you suck in your breath and you experience that, like, ludonarrative connection to the character. This entire movie is that feeling because here's the thing seeing it in a theater i have never seen a movie this quiet never in my life and especially not something so long and for such extended period of time and using that quietness for tension so i saw and you saw this in a pretty packed theater right I did, and the silence of the film itself, like, it really drew the audience's attention to themselves, to their own bodies, to their own breathing, like, all this stuff. So it's really a way to kind of speak to the viewer in a weird way. Yeah, and I, see, I saw this, you know, matinee on a Wednesday, so no one fucking there. Okay, so not packed. But, uh, (laughs) when when I did see it, it was just me and uh, my husband and some family friends that we were here with for the wedding, and it was just four of us, and I think there was a guy behind us, but even with that small number of people, just like, trying to find a moment where you could take a bite of popcorn and not disrupt, like, hearing each other try not to breathe too loudly, it... That's that's an experience I think that will be really lost if you're watching this. First of all, if you're watching this alone, or if you're watching this on a small screen or in like an environment that isn't isolated and doesn't like kind of enhance that thing. So like, this is a filmic experience I think that is really kind of novel in a way that I'm not sure is the thrust of the film, but but that enhances almost every part of the film. 
yeah, like, I just don't know that people are going to enjoy this if they purchase it on DVD or, like, get a digital copy so that they can watch it at home. Kind of as you pointed out, the sound is so crucial to this movie. Like, even the way that the sounds are edited, the jump scares and stuff, it's simply... There's something that's lost in translation were you to watch this on a small screen in a, like, a sitting room or something like that instead of a dark theater filled with people who are stressed out. Yeah, and it was one of those films that's, all, I, I think, genuinely anxiety-inducing. Um, oh, yeah. Just, like, whenever the... I, I love the intimacy of it, is whenever the creatures are right next to you, it's just, it's terrifying. And especially, I think, the shots where you had them in the background of the... And I, I hate... Kind of like it. in a soft focus or something. Yeah, the soft focus. But like, I, I, I hate saying the deaf girl. But it's hard to put names to the characters. I know the actress's name is Millie, because like I watched some interviews with John Krasinski and so on. But but are the characters actually named? Because they that was are named in the credits, but not out. in the film. Okay, so that's fascinating. It, I think it's itself. possible that there are subtle clues that we miss, like they have their names written down somewhere. Or something, but to my knowledge, they were not named in dialogue. So, and there, there's something kind of mythic about that when you're naming when oh, there definitely you is. have characters and you start trying to name them in your head, and they become things like the father, the son, the daughter, the mother, the dead son. You know, stuff like that. It it, it imbues it with this kind of not having a name has an interesting quality on this uncertainty, and I think that's also. To get mechanical, one of the greatest strengths of this movie is it drew these amazing performances out of, I think, basically everyone in it. Uh, because what you did is you took away one of the actor's greatest tools, their voice. And so you are forcing them to improvise and to emote and tr to try and use other tools to stretch them in ways that actors typically don't. Because we often talk about actors having like a great physicality or a great presence. And you can make up for that deficiency with a great voice. And people often do. You can. And there's so much that this movie kind of teaches us about what happens when voices are quiet. What else comes to the forefront. So like, for instance, the way that children play is drastically altered by this need for silence. Um, this thing that we're talking about now with naming changes too. Their names aren't necessarily spoken aloud in the movie. There's a lot of stuff that this film draws our attention to, even in terms of like expressions of pain um, and love can also potentially get you killed. So it changes the way that human interaction takes place. And I love that they were able to do that and to kind of weave into that these performances that are very emotional but they're very nuanced because there's so little dialogue you get so much out of gesture and so much out of emotion and that's that was just so arresting to me i was very impressed let's, so let we're on performances uh let's talk about the performances for just a moment here uh first of all i think john krasinski especially for i i feel like there is a tendency uh with uh starring directors to give themselves a little bit of leniency because, you know, there's a translation of vision and then there is the information, the informing 
when it when you when you see when you're when you're a creator, uh, sometimes you are not the best reviewer of your own work because you have the vision and the original inception of the idea in your mind, and you can make connections and bridges that maybe other people can't. So if something does not well convey information or doesn't quite convey, your brain as a creator might go, I know what I was going for. Yeah, I can see it. Um, but I think Krasinski pulled out a really great performance here. So to self-direct and to like have this powerful paternal role that he's put out with yeah. immense pathos, actually. Immense pathos. Uh, yeah. I Well... I don't have a deeper point to make except kudos to that. That was fantastic. Oh, yeah. No, I have a note about his performance in my notebook. It says, I didn't know John Krasinski could act like this. I think probably because so much of John Krasinski has been swallowed into this gigantic icon of of Jim from The Office. But, um, you know, like this performance is really kind of a tour de force. And, and what you're saying about him not kind of like taking over or taking up too much space, I think that's really reflective of Krasinski's humility based on what I've seen in interviews. Um, this piece seems very story driven and he seemed to care a great deal about um, what needed to be told in the story and what didn't. So he was willing to cut a lot of scenes um, that were flashback scenes, apparently. Those were mostly cut, and he said, you know, like, he didn't particularly feel bad doing it because the copy that came out was was yeah. ideal. Um, that, and that's very rare. Okay, that, that that's some world-building stuff. We, we, we have to come back to that if we want to talk about the performances yeah. at all. Um, sure. Emily Blunt, also fantastic. Uh, I, I think a particularly striking scene is the scene where she steps on a nail. And she has to oh, have yeah. these silence gasps of pain. Uh, yeah. And I, I, it's weird to say, I think, that I liked how she carried herself pregnant. Um, it's, it's a bit of physicality. And that's just the thing. is like the things we're looking at this film, I think, are very different to how we typically see people in film. Because when you would see like a woman being pregnant in another film, you might comment on how she speaks or how she carries herself while doing what we consider to be typically actory things. While we're looking at you know the dialogue and the expression and the interplay and the eye contact, but just pantomiming pregnancy. Yeah, and I think this performance that she's able to kind of conjure up for us is deeply rooted in her own experiences in pregnancy, too. Um, I was particularly impressed with this kind of, like, I don't know how to describe it other than to call it fragile strength. Like, that sounds totally paradoxical, but she really just kind of exudes this for the whole movie. Like, there's she's fragile, she's afraid for her child and the rest of her children and her husband, but there is a kind of strength to her, like, she reins herself in when she steps on that nail and, like, tries to contain it and, and does a variety of things to try and save her kids. I was really impressed by her performance. But then again, you know, like, I remember seeing her in Looper and thinking, you know, like, she's a really fantastic actress. Yeah, and uh, I think the breakout for the film is uh, Millicent Simmons as Reagan Abbott. And, yeah. uh she it again this is really difficult to talk about because these are 
there's no role in this film that is typical for any actor. And she exudes, like, this kind of defiant strength. Uh, I, I think if I had to describe her in one word in this is she is fierce. And that's yeah. not, I think, in the way we would say, like, strong female character. She's angry and no. she's combative, no. but she is... Pow- she's actually fierce. Yeah, yeah she's like actually powerful. powerful in her kind of emotionality. Uh-huh. And it, it's it's very compelling. She has a very strong face for it. I'm reminded a little bit of kind of like a cross between Eleven and Barb almost. Yeah. Yeah. I was I was thinking about that a little bit while I was in the theater. Yeah. And lastly, we have to talk about Noah Jupe as Marcus, the son, the second son. I, 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 I hesitate to call him a weak link because I don't think there are any weak links in this film. But I think compared to the three roles he is surrounded with, he's not quite as much of a standout. Uh, but he does still have some very good and some very powerful scenes. I think the exposition and the journey into the woodlands with uh, John Krasinski's Lee Abbott, with his father to talk about, and his dialogue about the sister and the love, that was all lovely stuff. I think I would characterize Noah Jupe's character, Marcus, as a uncertain and kind of fragile young boy like he's so throughout the film part of the story that's going on is um marcus is sort of being thrust into manhood in this weird way uh or at least attempting to follow or being told to follow these kind of like gender roles despite the fact that his sister reagan really kind of wants to go out and and this is played out through a scene in fishing reagan is told that she can't go fishing that it has to be marcus and, you know, like, he's, his dad ushers him into this sort of, like, world of, of manhood where you can kind of steal these moments of courage, which is, I think, what's going on with that waterfall scene. And so I, I see Marcus as being a very complicated little boy who is trying to reason his way in a world that really wants to kill him as much as it wants to kill the rest of his family. And his dad is kind of trying to help instill some form of confidence in him because that is what will help him to survive yeah no that, that I, I think that is a valid read. like i said i i i do hate to say because again no weak links in this film it's just it's worth noting where i feel like i don't quite have as much to say about him as the other three main roles in this and i don't want it to pass with without comment saying like oh no he, he's just that he's he's not he does wonderful work uh and he does good stuff. It's just not quite on the breakout success level, I think, as Emily Blunt, John Krasinski, and Millicent Simmons. Oh, yeah, no. Um, so going back to... If I had, like, the tiniest complaint about this film, uh, I think it would be just that the premise kind of doesn't make sense. In that you have, okay... Explain. This idea that we have these... Well, that's the thing. It's It's... It's where you draw the line for suspension of disbelief. Because this this idea that you have these basically animals, these weird super predators, these these reapers or skitter, whatever the hell you want to call them. They're basically clickers. 
the you have these things and that the military couldn't take them out is just silly. Really. To have something so armored that, you know, a 50 cal bullet won't hurt it is roughly implausible. And like that that's one of the kind of things if you want to look at this as this kind of like simulationist paramilitary prepper kind of oh, what would the government do kind of thing it's like yeah the fact that these things killed america is really silly because here's the thing without the radio scene you could assume perhaps not be told but assume and infer that they're in like some isolated part of the country that hasn't been reconstructed that hasn't been supported since the disaster while the rest of the world might, you know, beat them back and eventually catch up and come for them. That's something you could say. But with the radio scene, it seems to say that the entire world is gone. Yeah, that that was what I was thinking. I, I don't know. So I was wondering if, you know, like, you're right. The premise seems a little unstable. But I was wondering, too, like, is this because, you know, like, all of a sudden these aliens, like, just crash in? So it's kind of like a flashbang grenade to a certain extent where it just, like, goes off and then just... It's like shock troops, you know? Like, what do you do when something like that blindsides you? We don't know. We don't know. Yeah. And there's a lot that isn't explained. And I'm okay with that. The thing that what it comes down to is I was talking about this film with another friend and they had that complaint. It's like, it, it doesn't make sense. And that's, I think, a question of where you're willing to place your suspension of disbelief. Because when you accept the premise of these things as unkillable super predators that wiped out humanity, if you accept that premise, everything that follows, I think, works very well. If you don't, and if you want to get nitpicky, then you, you, you're kind of rejecting the premise of the entire film. And you're going to have an unpleasant experience. And I can see why people would go that way. Uh, but I feel like the experience of this film was sublime enough that I'm just like, ah, you know what? Monsters killed everyone. I'm okay with it. At the same time, though, like, th- there are signs of how things go. And one thing I did really love about this was how developed the systems were. Uh, now, this is something I read, this is something I've heard third hand basically is apparently in an interview when at home john krasinski and emily blunt would actually try to immerse themselves in the roles and try to be silent themselves and whenever they would just like you know drop a fork or like touch something and knock it on the table like they just point each other and say you're dead and there's a sense there's a sense of that in how you have these very well worn the safe places you can step in the creaky houses the yeah um you know the uh like ash or peat or whatever it is that they're laying out everywhere the really soft really fine coarse dirt it's sand yeah something it's something white powdery i think sand is plausible but i don't know what it is yeah but this whole there's this very lived in sense that this world is adapted to the way that they have to comport themselves in this apocalypse Right. Um, in particular, what I really loved and I was really relieved to see was the blanket box for the baby. Really? That looked like a casket. I mean, it was a crib and casket combined. It was. I actually found it super disturbing. It is disturbing. <laughs> but I was very relieved because the fear that I had 
was that this film would have a strangle your baby so the Gestapo doesn't get you scene. Oh, okay. And the fact that they had a baby and they had a practical solution, as grim and as fatalistic as it is, that you raise your baby in a box with an oxygen mask, the fact that they had a solution felt really naturalistic and was a huge sigh of relief of, oh, God, that's what they're doing. Okay, they're not going to have to kill their baby. Thank you, baby Jesus. Yeah. And that that's the kind of tension that this world creates. And this world was really well settled. I love the light bulbs and the alarm system. I love the bridge. And I really love, like, the kind of, like, almost home alone-ish contingencies they had of, you know, like, lighting off series of fireworks and stuff. That was all really cool. That was really great. I love the solution to their problem being um, this young child's cochlear implant. Like, that was amazing to me. I love that. That something that, you know, like, had been so central to the plot and had also, like, she had kind of seen as sort of like a source of sadness and even at times agony, all of a sudden this became a source of immense strength and a way to protect her family. Like I just, I thought that was such a wonderful narrative flourish for them to do kudos to them. And it was also, it played into more than just being some kind of MacGuffin. Uh, Oh yeah. Because one of the things is, first of all, like that's another thing if you want to get really nitpicky is apparently the clickers just have really shitty hearing, (laughs) which is kind of funny. Huh? Um, but huh? Yeah, when you think about it, huh? It's it's like uh yeah okay. Yeah. But uh, the other thing yeah. is one of the <laughs> best ways to identify when they're near you and to be aware of them and to be safe from them is to listen for them, and she could not. Um, right. Like I said, there's that great shot where a clicker is right next to her and she can't hear it at all. Um, so it's not just a MacGuffin; it's also a source of danger for her, and. What I really like is the emotional beat when she comes into her father's like office, the radio station or whatever you want to call it, the oh, outpost, yeah. and there's just dozens of the things in a pile. Favorite. He's been trying to make them. He's been working so hard at this, and it's after he's dead, and there's this real sadness. There's a tear that rolls down her cheek, and it's just beautiful. It's Not only is it a practical device as a MacGuffin that is the thing that allows you to beat the monster— but it also is a symbol of a father's love and yeah. of dedication, especially in this post-apocalyptic world where really, like, electronics engineering is kind of the last thing you want to be spending resources on. But it was important to him, and as much as she refused it and she was sick of it, it was important to her too. Yeah, and I I love the storyline with the family and kind of like going through these cycles of of grief over this child that they lose in the first scene. The first scene of the movie is great. It sets the tone for everything and it really gets you used to being in this world that's so, so quiet. But it's wonderful that it's carried throughout the story is how this family deals with the grief of losing this child and... um, Millicent's character on her part sort of blames herself for the loss of this child. Their mom blames herself for it as well. And, you know, there's just this kind of fear on this young child's part that her parents don't love her. 
that her dad does not okay. love her. So and that's what makes that scene I so I actually great. have a take. I have a take yeah. on this. Okay. Um, so one thing I think is interesting, and I'm going to go on a bit of a tangent here. Uh, so follow me back into this. That's fine. But We're used to that. Um, it's difficult to keep friends after college. It really is. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that is, in my experience, and at least as I formulate in my mind, because most friendships that we have are incidental. We are friends with people we see every day because it is easy to see them. We are friends... Not not necessarily by shared interest, though that is a factor, but more that they are people who are close to us. We have friends that we have almost nothing in common with. Uh, and once you lose that incidence, once you lose that excuse that you see each other every other day, or you stop being in classes together, or you stop living in the same building, you know, once you might say, you have to put in active effort to communicate with these people. And many of us our friends by convenience and incidence and not because we actually make a great deal of effort to be friends. And so when you get out of college, you lose a lot of friends, but you do find friends that you stick with. And that's why we are friends with our coworkers. We are friends with our family members. We are friends with our neighbors, but it's very difficult to, we, to be friends with someone who you don't see, who you don't yeah. have incidental contact with is a difficult thing. And I think that's, to bring this back to the film, I think that's why we have these like dysfunctional emotional problems between these character dynamics is because they are not allowed to have incidental grief. Yep. Because yep. when language, it, it's one thing, you can catch you know you can come down the stairs and see your dad crying and then you'd be like what's up dad and he like he doesn't have to say anything it's like it's in the but in this to communicate is a very deliberate action and i have to assume that you know they that you know because we've got the cochlear implant because of the way the world seems to be set up is that I think that even though they know sign language, I don't think it was their primary form of communication before the apocalypse. I I don't know. I, I think that's a difficult question to answer. It may not have been the primary form, but it may have been... I mean, it was definitely one of the forms, obviously. Yeah. Well, I mean, specifically, though, Millie... Du- and see again i'm going back to millie reagan does have an implant which implies that she had some hearing uh there and like when they're allowed to speak to each other it's seen as a very precious moment like something that they've lost um oh but yeah even that's so, a good point when something is a second language and like i i to most people i don't speak i don't sign uh AOS. yeah i don't either um but in my experience, when you have a second language, like I speak Thai, uh, when you have a second language, you are more deliberate in it. You are less incidental. You are more guarded and you are more precise, but also clumsy with it in that right. you have to choose words. You have to think about how to phrase and how to pronounce or how to sign. And you're less eloquent and less capable of communicating subtle or nuanced things 
And so I think that because they don't have this channel for how you would naturally incidentally express grief, that it leads to this kind of compression and isolation and feeling that each of them is grieving alone. Because it's difficult to sit down and say, how are you dealing with this, right? You know? Yeah. But it's even more difficult to do that where, you know, you have to get their attention, you have to sign it, and you have to speak this in what might not be your first language and to use... Because... ALS is, the, it's what, symbol-based? ASL. AS, sorry, ASL? Oh, God, I've been, um, oh. <laughs> oh, it's okay, it's okay. We all have dyslexic moments. Um, I think it is symbol-based, but some of it's also, like, some of it also references letters and phrases and stuff. So, like, it's a symbolic language, as all languages are, yeah. but it, it references But specifically, uh, for me... From what I understand, it seems that there are gestures mean words, not phonetics that represent that construct words. Unless you're doing compound things like names or words that are not in like a standardized dictionary. I mean, this is a really good question. If we have any listeners um, who know someone who signs or sign themselves, we would love to hear from you on this because I actually don't know the answer to that question and I'd be very curious to find that out. And I think that's one of the things that the film actually really raised for me is how little I know about signing and sign language and even um, having the language to talk about ability um, and people who are differently abled. Like this movie made me realize that that there's kind of a lack in my life of being able to talk about those things, of having the language to do that. So, and, and that's okay. I'm... I'm asking questions. We'll see. Absolutely. See what we can find out. And weirdly enough, also, I feel like the world metaphorically punishes expressions of grief. It's a blunt metaphor. Absolutely. It 100% punishes expressions of grief. Um, But in particular, there's the old man in the woods whose wife dies. Uh, my and my husband actually pointed out because I didn't get a good look at the corpse and I thought it was just another old guy. No. Um, so like, there's that expression of grief and there's that pain and, in a way, it almost kind of reflects this like masculine ideal of emotional stoicism. Uh, where to express emotion to express grief is weakness that is you know purged and punished. And it's actually, I think, really touching that uh, Krasinski's final moment is to channel his grief and to loudly express his love. And that vulnerability is what allows his children to escape. I think that's a brilliant, brilliant reading on this, um, on what this does, like what the silencing does as a system. Absolutely. And, and that last final scream that he or yell I guess that he yells before that thing comes to get him it sounds like it's been born of years of stress and fear and I don't know how you produce that emotion for a take like that like that to me is really impressive acting work no and I I I really did love that scream and because I this is where I feel and I do often talk, I think, about these hypothetical weaker films or these hypothetical different weaker choices a director or an actor could make. Um, 
but I do think it is important to talk about these things because we have to recognize where these films might have gone or could have gone. And mm. I could absolutely see it being like um, like Jeff Goldblum in uh, Jurassic Park. Or, or, or was that... Um, that was, no, that was Sam Neill, I think. Where it's like, hey! Yeah, that was Sam Neill. <laughs> where it's like, hey, over here! Hey! You know? Because that, in practical terms, would be just as effective. Uh, to have, you know, that, or to have like an angry, defiant kind of, ah, here I am, I am John Krasinski, hear me roar. Yeah. You could have that. And that would, I think, be a serviceable choice. But this was a profound choice. Uh, yeah, I totally agree. And it. It it hurts. It it hurts it, real good. It did. It hurt to watch. It hurt a lot to watch. There was so much emotion contained in it also from watching his children, like his kids watching him die. Like that's just horrifying. Um, one of the questions that I had for you, because you do this work in animation and also because I mean you've just you've seen a lot more stuff than I have in terms of like creature features and anime and stuff is what you think of the creatures themselves. What do you think of the design? Um, what do you think of the sound? How how do these rank? Okay, uh, first of all, in terms of sound design, I think they're top-notch. Top-notch sound design. Uh, they're, 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 off, they're all actually kind of a little bumbling. They knock a lot of stuff over. They make a lot of noise. But the clicking is a nice kind of audible signature. Uh, because one thing I also do is I do tabletop games and so on, like Dungeons & Dragons stuff. And one of my yeah, favorite yeah. stories that I tell from that is a campaign I played with my buddy Eric and some other friends. And I had them chased by a really scary monster. And what this monster did mm -hmm. was it was completely blind and it would constantly be making these clicking noises. And whenever it found something, it, and it's like this like long, gangly, like xenomorph-looking motherfucker. And it would okay. just like <laughs> crawl at something in a freaky way, grab a person, pick them up headbutt them until they were unconscious and then bite their heads off. It was really scary. And I remember having them like running through a tunnel and hearing it because I was I was the GM. We were playing like in a basement by candlelight. Uh -huh. And I would just go Yeah. <laughs> and they would just freeze whatever they were talking about rolling or doing. And it was such a good thing. So having that signature that ide immediately identifiable visceral, that's what that is, that was fantastic. Now, as for the design itself, one thing that I think is really good is how little we saw of them till the end. I really like that we barely see them and so on. I think the design itself is not anything to write home by itself in the light of day. Mm -hmm. But the way it's used is very clever. I do really like the focus on the ears and that weird, like, shifting plate kind of pinecone-looking head. I think that's really cool. Uh, but the body and the claws and the gangly arms, I think, is not boilerplate, but serviceable. Okay. I do think, though, that they are... Uh, I think they are best served when they are in motion. In particular, the shot where one comes out of the woods and kills the first child. And you see how yeah. long and elongated and stretched out it is. That's a brilliant shot, and the design really flies there. Uh, but when it's like in a confined space and it's kind of folded up on itself, 
it's a little bit boring, but still completely serviceable and really strengthened. And that weakness, I think, is ameliorated by the just absolute brilliant staging and emotional context you have for it. Because we hear them and we are afraid of them long before we see what they look like. Oh, 100%. Um, I think one of the best <laughs> yeah. shots of these monsters is when Emily Blunt uh, looks, go, look, she goes to go up the stairs and she sees the legs of one walking past the doorway to the basement and she immediately pulls back and goes into panic mode. There's a part of me that wishes that these creatures were sort of kept like that where they're only seen for the audience, you know, like out of the corner of your eye or glimpses or something like that throughout the entire movie. I know that they couldn't do that because of the story that they wanted to tell, but I, like you, I, I really liked that. I liked the idea that they, they're these strange creatures that are, you know, like all hearing, all consuming, and they kind of come at you out of the corner of your eye. That's frightening. I mean, here, here's an idea, a hypothetical that I think moviegoers wouldn't necessarily like as much, but I think that would be more interesting on a kind of narrative conceptual level is this idea that these creatures are not necessarily invisible but ethereal like that you can only kind of see them and so that you sense their presence and you don't see their shadow or you see their face but you see like a shimmer in the air and you hear the clicking like that they're cloaked or something i think that would be really cool that's terrifying (laughs) It's terrifying, but you can see how, like, not having a monster, I think, is less marketable in, like... Yeah. I, I just watched some of those um, Toys That Made Us things on Netflix, and I'm just like, like, toyetic, mm-hmm. but for movie monsters. is like, we like having something visual to latch onto and to anchor these kind of fears onto. So, I think, like, having... Because, like, when you think of Poltergeist, you don't think of the books flying off the shelves... You don't. No. You, you you think of like the spooky kid and the TV and the doll. There there are these totems that you assign the monster to, but and so having an ethereal monster, I think, is something that, while I think is a strong and striking choice, I think mm. doesn't necessarily focus test that well and no is weak. So you know probably not. However, I I do I do want to say. My husband fucking loved the design. I do love the way they move with those long, multi-segmented arms. And the way their heads open up is really cool. Uh, what's really interesting to me, though, is the shot where it kind of collapses from the feedback to the sound. Uh, yeah. that, se- that particular shot felt very... It felt like bad CGI in a way that was really familiar and comforting. And I cannot describe what film it's reminding me of. But did, did you get that? I kind of did. I don't know why I was reminded of Doctor Who in that moment, but that was what immediately popped into my head. Yeah, because it's like like convulsing in the light and it's collapsing. And there's this kind of framing where it's very wide at the base, but the perspective is making its head very small. And I'm having deja vu. I just don't know what it's reminding me of. Like there's something really familiar about that shot that I love, and I don't know what it is. Hmm... We'll probably figure it out later. Yeah, I'm, I'm gonna point. I'm gonna be in the shower <laughs> late. I'm just gonna go. Ah! And you're gonna remember it. Oh, that's what it was. Yeah, that's what it's gonna be. Do you want to move on to deep cuts? 
I mean, we've kind of done some we, deep cuts. We have been in deep cuts the entire time, I think. Well, yeah, I mean, we've been in deep cuts and we didn't know. My, my, my husband yeah. is nodding at me. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time. Oh, yeah. So now that we've talked about, you know, sort of like what you think about the creatures in terms of design and like sound and stuff, I was wondering, what do we think this monster is? What does it represent? What is the monster in the movie? Okay. Well, first of all, let's let's get let's go back to being superficial for a second. Uh, do we think okay. these are demons? Do we think these are aliens? Do we think these are underground primordial creatures? What do we think? They're aliens. The movie tells us off the bat that they're aliens that have come from a meteorite, likely. Did it? I didn't catch that. Yeah, yeah, it did. It did. It, it said there's kind of like this meteorite that hits Earth, and then all of a sudden you have this influx of creatures. So you have this sort of alien force. The other from the outside has come in okay. to Earth. Then to, I, I, I clearly this. missed something very obvious because my husband is giving me a look. He's like, you missed that? How? <laughs> oh, you missed it. Okay. Uh, so w- both of us missed it, apparently. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, because that is one thing that I think is like, I prefer this idea that they're like paranatural or supernatural in origin Partially because it helps sell the idea that they were able to defeat science, basically, is what you look at when they have to defeat, like, a military-industrial complex, and they have to be actually bulletproof. Uh, Uh So this idea that it's, like, there were aliens, and there were these, like, because they do seem to be, I think, not, if not sentient, but, like, not really sapient, really. They're, They're very unself-aware and they don't seem very inquisitive so they don't feel like an intelligent force and i feel like if they had to obey like if they had to play ball with physics that you know Mm -hmm. it really would be implausible for them to ruin the world Hmm. so this idea that they're like like i said like divas or like particularly like you see how one moves through the water like i feel like they might be burrowy so like they're this primordial or paranatural thing, I think, is a more compelling idea for me. But I think it's not important to the film to identify what it is. This is just something I think that was kind of fun to explore because it's like, yeah, yeah totally. it's, it's aliens. But also, it's it could also be like some kind of bioengineered super weapon. Like, there's a lot of Resident Evil vibe to it. Oh, totally, yeah. Reminds me of the liquors. Uh, you've got those re- needlepoint teeth, really sharp. And... One thing I noticed, now, Annie, tell me if you saw this at all, but when the one opened up, like, all its faceplates at the same time, I felt like I saw, like, the kind of shadow shape of where a nose would be. Yeah, I also did. So it felt almost like there was a human face underneath there, almost. Oh, that's weird. Yeah. That That's very weird. That adds, like, a weird dimension onto it. Yeah. I mean, it also reminds me of, like, that kind of H.R. Geiger kind of style of design where you're looking at these things. And one thing that I find really fascinating as a concept in kind of visual fiction of this is this kind of recontextualization of, like, old writings and things. Like, um, when we hear of, like, you know, Seraphim and Ophans and, like, the different cherubs and these different like yeah. things about angels right we think of these really like classical like woodcut 
illustrations of them sure. and that they are very much like it was three three rings of eyes and it's like oh yeah you think of like three golden rings with eyes but when you have like sometimes these modern uh like fantasy illustrators and so on go back and they say like well what if we took it is this is the best description that they could have for something that was really kind of cosmic and like follows yeah. more fantastic like you could see something like this coming out of the ground and then like you know uh someone in like 2000 bc describing it as demons came out of the earth black winged beasts that scraped and clawed you, you, you see how that works out is like this idea that maybe something like this happened before or that like this is the kind of thing like this is what a demon really looks like this is what an angel really looks like this is you know the, the, maybe these were the locusts from plagues you know there's there's all kinds of interesting because like these things do like kill everything in their path uh we oh, don't really yeah. see them eat but like you could see something like this like these guys swinging through a place and then the survivors writing like they were like locusts they ate and killed everything and yeah. then later on through like you know uh telephone and writing down and translation it's just like locusts killed everything in the world you know so that's just kind of an yeah. aside from me. Um, but as for what these monsters represent metaphorically, that I think is really difficult yeah. to pin down. Um, I think so too, because I think it's probably a variety of things. I, the, yeah, I, 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 the, the primary thing that I can identify is they do seem to represent a kind of regimented social norm in that any violation of of societal rules in this case the rules of like polite society or society or you know uh capitalism or whatever are substituted sure, with yeah. silence by violating the silence by violating the social contract of you shut the fuck up you move quietly you are punished and you are removed from society in this case by death you know you don't pay your taxes you go to jail you don't you know you you ask a woman her age on the first date. You don't get laid. You know, there's all these things where <laughs> there are these rules that we have to follow. And if we don't follow them, there are consequences. And whether or not we agree with these rules, whether or not these rules are fair or completely arbitrary, we are forced. To, and so by having these – because that this is – very much, I think, a part of how this film constructs itself and its world is through the use of systems, is you have sand on the roads, you have these gray-painted safe patches to stand on, is you have these segments, you have these rote ways of doing things, and doing things outside of them doesn't necessarily mean death, but risk death. And one thing I, th I see a lot of is not the not the noise bringing the demons or the monsters or the clickers or whatever you want to call them. It's not that. It's noise happening and the reaction of everyone and this anxiety of will they come? Is this too egregious of a violation? And that's, I think, the anxiety that we have in like these social situations where, you know, you make a faux pas and then you freeze up and go, oh, was that too far? Are they going to let it slide? Are they going to laugh it off? Or are they going to get offended? You know, and it's that moment of tension. And I think this is kind of that writ large. Oh, yeah, totally. 
no, like they're definitely a form of like societal norm police. That's a hundred percent of I think. Actually, I think you'll find that the clickers are SJWs, <laughs> and they're thought policing you to not being able to say anything that's not PC. I get to dare. Oh God. I don't know. Maybe there's an argument to be made here too. Like if since we're talking about systems, it's this sort of idea of like. I don't know. I don't know if I'd call it hyper-rationality because I don't really see these creatures as being hyper-rational. Like, they live to consume, it kind of seems like, from what we're given in this film, and we haven't been given a huge amount of background for them. Um, But they sort of seem to consume without feeling, too. So there's kind of this idea that they represent um, perhaps a sort of, like, cold rationality or, like... um, Basically, like, they're lower down on Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? They're just about eating, sleeping, procreating. They're not about emotion. Um, The humans are about emotion. And then that's kind of like what you were saying. That's what needs to be contained. That's what needs to be policed. So uh, there seems to be some kind of dialogue between rationality and emotion going on Okay, so actually, I've got a new thought that I want to share. Uh-oh. Okay. Is that... They are reactionaries in a literal sense of the word. Um, Yeah. Because one thing that we see is um, basically nothing is safe. All the ammo is safe. But in particular, within the scope of the film, it is human action that we are most concerned with. Right. And what it seems to me to say is that it is these natural expressions of being visibly human, of playing, of grieving – of speaking mistakes, and loving, of, of making dancing. mistakes. Uh, it, yeah. Is this expression where any time that you unacceptably express your humanity and your identity as human, because that's one thing I think that very much much humanity is stripped away from the lives of these characters because they are not allowed to grieve or to laugh or to cry, you know, in pain. Mm. Uh, so one thing I kind of see a parallel to is, you know, like women on the internet or people of color on the internet where when you step out of line people come out of the woodwork to shout you down and to silence your voice yeah Yeah. and so i see a lot of parallels there now that you mentioned this kind of like thought policing kind of societal role that they have and so being literal internet trolls i think is <laughs> you know the, mo- it, it, the it, monsters it, are internet trolls turns- yeah no i can see that i mean i think there's a societal context to sustain a reading like that and i i think that's that's fine um i'm also like one of the other things that i had written down in my book was you know kind of like along the lines of them being mindless consumers too And so, therefore, potentially being a foil for the children. Like, so much of the story in this movie is about, you know, like, they'll know what to do. The kids will know what to do if, you know, like, we're out of the picture. That's one of the main lines toward the end of the movie. And so it's about this idea of crisis parenting that, you know, like, you raise your kids up so that they can try and survive um, and try and make it. And the monsters kind of represent the opposite of what they are. They're they're consuming. They don't see anything. They don't really perceive things. They just 
hear their food and they go and get well, it. Two things, two things here. Uh, one, you keep saying this word consume, consumer is consumer. And that's something I actually kind of disagree with here because we never see them eating. We never see them oh, that's a really consuming good point. anything or hunting. We just see them attacking and destroying. Okay. Like we see them kill the raccoon. That's a good point. And just, we just see a claw spot <laughs> down. We, I've never, to my mind, I've never that's, seen them actually point. like eating anything they killed. Yeah. Now that I'm thinking about it, I'm realizing that you're absolutely right. So it's it's just mindless violence then. Like killing without feeling, I guess. Yeah, and that that's, I think, part of what sells me so much on this idea of them being some kind of, like, biblical horror or something is this idea that yeah. they don't make any kind of biological sense. They don't have a sense of smell yeah. or a sense of sight. They have really shitty hearing. Uh, but And they don't seem to need to eat to sustain themselves. Hmm, yeah. Because they also attack machines. Did I miss something else? Did it, when did they attack a machine? Uh, in the control center. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Which was because it made noise, right? Okay. Hold up. I, I am being directed to an article here. Krasinski worked closely <laughs> with ILM to develop the creature designs, and in doing so came up with why they look the way they do. Quote, The idea behind all is that they're definitely aliens, and they're an evolutionarily perfect machine. So the idea is that if they grew up on a planet that had no humans and had no light, then they don't need eyes and can only hunt by sound. They also develop a way to protect themselves from everything else, so that's why they're bulletproof and all these things. I had to make it make sense. I needed the rules of the monster to adhere as tightly to the rules of the family. The family, we had set up all these incredible rules. I need the monster to not just be convenient. Mm, okay. So we have a little bit of an idea of the monster as automaton going on yeah. in there. I um, can see that. And the other idea was the armor is also the reason why they were able to survive the kind of explosion of their planet and survive on these meteorites because they've evolved to be bulletproof. Until they open themselves up to be vulnerable, they're completely invulnerable. Mm. So there's something going on here, too, about vulnerability. Another word that I think yeah. is I important. I kind of prefer... like. It's, it's, it's interesting to examine this and these interviews as well, though, because I I like my interpretation. Uh, and I, I'm going very much death of the author here. Yeah, why not? Uh, because, like, it, it, it's kind of where you get to, like, the Wolverine thing, where it's like, yeah, you can regenerate from everything, but you need energy to make all that mass, you know? Um, so it's like, I, I feel like it's not super developed in such a way. Like it makes sense if you don't pick apart too much. And I love picking stuff apart. Like I, I've been nitpicking <laughs> movies and sci movie sci-fi for years. And this is weirdly one of those cases where I'm just like, just say that it doesn't make sense. Just say <laughs> that it doesn't follow logical sense because really they have such shitty hearing. Oh, my God. You know? That's one of the big things. Well, and that's that's also... So, I feel like we've seen this as a trope, too, in monster movies that you and I have seen over the past year. So, like, I'm thinking about life and split and annihilation and alien. You know, like, these movies are all about 
a super evolved species that has like evolved way beyond humans, you know, like killing us off. And here we have the species that like you're saying does not make sense and does not have a good sense of hearing. So it's, it's almost like this weird coincidence of nature where, you know, like nature doesn't really care. It's just going to insert an invasive species. Okay. So I want to share a story because you mentioned aliens and specifically, this is why I think Neil deGrasse Tyson is a bit of a dickhead. Oh, no. Because I met Neil deGrasse Tyson. <laughs> oh, oh, I remember the story which you told on the podcast. Did I already tell this one on the podcast? <laughs> oh, yes, you did. Okay, oh, yeah. Yes, but it's like, just like, that. I really like that idea in Aliens, um, what was it? Not Covenant. Not Covenant. What was the one before Covenant? Promethe- Not in Prometheus. In Prometheus. Was- in Prometheus. Oh, no. Where it explored the idea that the aliens was some kind of biological weapon, which makes sense one of the core problems with the alien as the super predator apex predator because it is an unsustainable predator a it's kind of like in the metroid series uh they're often defined in like lore and logbooks as being parasites and it's like no a parasite lets the host live for a long time when you kill something you're a predator and a perfect virus, the a 100% lethality virus, would kill itself because there would be no host mm. left. Uh, right. A perfect hunter is an unsustainable biological niche. Mm. And so that's why... And huh. in particular, what I think... And I keep coming back to the whole demon idea. And I really like it because yeah. the, the more I think about it and the more I'm talking about... Because this wasn't something I really had developed as a theory or an, like a complex nuanced read when we started recording is that it does not punish sound absolutely what it's and it definitely does not punish human sound absolutely what Mm -hmm. it seems to punish is humans what it it seems to punish accidental sound it seems to punish the inability to suppress sound Because you make incidental sound when you move, when you breathe, when you do anything. And right. the, you know, the, the baby cries a lot. And yeah. that crying is definitely louder than a lot of sounds that draw the monsters. And so it seems more like you cannot... It, it, it seems almost like this idea of sound as sin, where something that is done unknowingly cannot be a sin, where the conscious decision to do something wicked is... At times, I'm not going to point to specific kinds of crimes and sins and transgressions, but we all get a sense of like that kind of vibe and where we've seen stuff like that. You know, it's like the first people's things is like, you know, if we did not know of this Jesus, would we go to hell? No, of course not. Then why did you tell us? Right. Uh, Right. And in that way, like. And that intersects really weirdly with the child at the beginning because he is very much innocent. But he is also kind of in a way spared from the suffering of living in this hellish world. Because we do revisit the site of his death and it's become a grave. And it is marked with his favorite toys and pictures of him. And it's a memorial. And as fatalistic as it is, it's almost a better thing than to live in this constant unending fear. Because we see them, at the beginning, they're somewhat more functional, I think, emotionally. And at the end of it, on day 472, each of them is, I think, uniquely broken in a way that they weren't at the beginning of the film. 
Oh, yeah. So, you know, only the dead may know peace from this terror. Yep. Yep. Man, the movie morgue just bringing you some grade A nihilism today. It's me, Doc. I'm the one who who wants to spin (laughs) sci-fi into being about literal demons. Mm -hmm. Though, to be fair... Um, metaphysics is full of demons. There's Laplace's demon. Oh, there's yeah. Pascal's demon. It, whenever it comes to how does thermodynamics, he's like, what if there was a really tiny demon? <laughs> uh, I mean, there's so much that you could explain that way, right? Like the little shoulder angel and the shoulder demon from uh, Emperor's New Groove. Oh, crap. I definitely feel like I know a couple people who have those people on their shoulder. Maybe for making did decisions. Did you just cock a tri- uh, pitchfork? Yes. Yes, you did. Ten. <laughs> so, yeah. I mean, do we have any closing comments on this? Because like, we're coming up on time a little bit. and Yeah. I think this is a fantastic movie, and people really should go and see it. Please go and see it in the theaters if you can. Um, for those who are afraid of jump scares, I am recommending that you go and see it at a theater with shittier sound quality um, for your own viewing pleasure. But for those of you who are into it, I definitely say go see this on a as big of a screen as you can manage and with a good sound system because this is a really remarkable um, and unique horror film. Absolutely, um, like like I said, I think this is something that is going to be worth seeing in theaters, and I'm really excited to see what John Krasinski does next because this, I I did not expect this from him. No. I absolutely no. did not, and I am so pleasantly surprised. Um, and absolutely. that's kind of our thoughts on this. Uh, I'm just kind of stuck yeah. in like, yes, they are demons. It makes sense. They are demons. <laughs> Literal punishment. You've from gone back God. to demons. You've gone back yeah, to demons. No. <laughs> it's hard. Like the more I think about it, the more I like it. And I'm normally like, oh, come on, demons, really? It's the devil. But and that's it, it how this cycles into John Constantine. <laughs> oh, we will do Constantine. I love that movie. Oh, yes, we will. Anyways, this has been the Movie Morgue. I've been your host, Silvio Emery. You guys can follow me on Twitter at DoubleDocMD or follow the podcast itself at MovieMorgueCat. And I've been Annie Neller, and you all can always find me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Lights and Music. Our intro music, as always, is troubled by the immensely wonderful ipso factibus link to their Bandcamp in the description uh please be sure to like follow subscribe rate whatever you want to do itunes podcast addict stitcher wherever you find podcasts give us a like give us a listen. follow us on facebook follow our twitter we have a group and we have a Facebook group where we do a lot of chatting about movies. We talk about these things. We have a Discord where we talk about all these movies. And we carry on the conversation way past this because I promise you, I'm going to turn off this recording. I'm going to go take a bath and then I'm just going to go, shit, I didn't talk about thing. And then I'm going to go to Facebook. <laughs> I'm going to go to Discord. I'm going to go like, shit, guys, here's a thing I never even talked about. It changes the whole conversation because that's what I do because I'm an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> Anyways, no comment. Oof. Thank you so much. You guys all have a fantastic time. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.